Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Footsteps of Messiah. I think we're on the bottom of page 155, the judgment seat of Messiah. So now before we get into the tribulation, we have studied all the pre-tribulational events. Gog and Magog, Psalm 83, we've studied all these events. Uh, now we're going to look at activities that are going on in heaven. At the same time things are happening on earth, things are happening in heaven. And so now we're going to go, after the rapture, where do we go? The judgment seat of Messiah, or the Bema seat of Messiah. It's the rewards seat. If you're a Christian... This is not a judgment of your sin. Your sin has already been judged at the cross. It is a judgment of your works as a believer. It's a judgment of your discipleship. It's a judgment of your sanctification. It's a judgment of how you serve the Lord. And it's a, a judgment of, uh, of how you like ran the race is Paul's terminology. Um, and so, there's no condemnation in this judgment, but it's important to understand it. Okay, so if you turn to the next page, on page 156, the, we'll come to the first text of just stating the fact of judgment. And this is in Romans 14, 10 through 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you set at naught your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now that's interesting of standing before him. It's all, that passage, uh, has a direct link to what Jesus said in Luke 21, 34 through 36. So, standing before God or standing before Christ is the only way of escaping the tribulation. Obviously, and that's what Luke was mentioning, that we stand before Christ. And you're not on the planet. So, the same terminology Paul uses, of standing before God in judgment. That's what you want to, where you want to be, uh, as a believer. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue sh- uh, shall confess to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, again, you're not giving an account of your sins, because your sins are taken care of. You're going to give an account of your discipleship. Of what kind of life did you lead after you got saved? Okay, That's what you're going to have to answer for. You're not answering for salvation. You're answering for what you did. Even though this is not a judgment of sin, the sins we get into are indirectly related to this. Now, what what do I mean by that? Well, if a believer does get into sin, which is very possible and goes through a season of life that they're out of fellowship with the Lord, which can happen very easily to a lot of people, um, that will affect their discipleship. That will affect their service to the Lord. That will affect what they do for the Lord's kingdom. So hence, yes, sin has an effect, even though it will not be condemned since it's condemned with Christ, it does affect the believer's rewards in an indirect way, if that makes sense. Okay, so... You obviously can make, make, make the point that someone got into a season of sin for six months or to a year or whatever. They're not going to be rewarded for that. 
because they were messed up. They were out of fellowship with the Lord. The minute you go out of fellowship with the Lord, all rewards cease at that point in time. You're not gaining rewards at that point in time because you're out of fellowship. That's why it's important to continue to confess your sin because He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. When you go unconfessed, you are asking God to discipline you because you won't admit it. You're, you're persistent in, in saying, I'm not going to admit it. I'm not going to admit it. I'm not going to admit it. And the more you persist, the more you're asking him to finally take you to the woodshed. And he will. But if you, you want to avoid discipline, then you confess it. And that's how you stay in, stay in fellowship with him. So we're talking about when someone gets into out of fellowship, they're being persistent and stubborn in their uh, sin, and they're denying it many times, and willfully denying it. And they're not going to about to admit it. So that's when they're asking for Hebrews chapter 12 to come into play and for a spanking. Uh, anyway, let's go to the second passage. 2 Corinthians 5.10 provides the basis of this judgment. Okay, So we have the fact of the judgment. Now you have the basis for this judgment. For we must be all made perfect, or, or sorry, made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. So the basis of judgment is the believer's works. Remember in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you were, you were um, saved unto good works, for good works. So he has these, these works planned for you, specifically for you to do, once you get saved. We're created for good works. Now what does that mean? To flush this out, you have to get into the ideas of you have specific works that God has detailed and planned for you to do based on the types of gifting he has given you as a believer. And as you know, a believer receives plural gifts. Those gifts are to be used in service for the Lord, and that's why he has the works planned out for you, tailored for your gifts. It's incumbent upon us to know what our gifts are, and then to exercise them and to develop them. Woe to those who take their gifts and bury them and, and put them in the dirt until the Lord returns. Because that's the person he's talking about. You knew I was an, uh, a hard man huh? or uh, an austere man. And, and, you know, that whole thing in Matthew chapter 25 where he condemns the guy who buried his talent. The talents obviously represent the time, te- treasure, and talent and the spiritual gifts he gives each believer. And he expects us to create a profit with the gifts. So, the first thing you have to understand as believers, I need to know my gifts immediately. Second, I need to develop my gifts because they're embryonic in me. And I have to develop them. I have to train myself. I have to get better. And the third thing, I have to employ them in the service of the body of Christ. In the service of evangelism. And you won't get past that. The gifts are there to edify the body of Christ and for evangelism. Those are the two ministries, and you won't get past that. So, you will be rewarded, not on someone else's gifts, but on the particular gifts he's given you, and he's going to say, how did you use that gift? What did you do with it? How many people did you help in the body of Christ? Now, many times in the passages in the New Testament, people take passages out of context, obviously, and they just apply them anywhere. And most of the epistles, you have to understand, are the context is ministry within 
the body of Christ. So it says when you see your brother or sister, when you see those types of words, your brother and sister, your brother and sister, it's referring to what you're to do in the church. And it doesn't mean that outside. It means inside the context of the church. As you know, outsiders are to be evangelized. As you know, the Great Commission does that. But what is the Great Commission? It's not just evangelism. What is it? Use discipleship within the, the Great Commandment in, in the Great Commission. And so, not only do you get them saved, but you have to disciple them. A lot of the commands in the New Testament have to do with discipling believers. When your brother and sister does this, when your brother and sister does that, you are to do this, you are to do that. And so, a lot of what you're looking for is, how are you ministering to the body of Christ, along with evangelism? Okay, because the, the, that's what the gifts are to be used for. Okay. Now, it's obviously the Lord is fair in understanding what people are capable of, because he obviously says there's some people with five talents, some people with two talents, some people with one talent. But what he expects the one talent to do is at least double the one. The two talent to double the two, and the five to double the five. So he's not judging them unfairly. He knows what they've been given, and he expects them to do what they have. So a lot of those people who have went, had bad experiences, they make the best ministers, and I'm not, not talking like pastors or elders, but ministering to other people because they, they have went through it. Instead of, instead of turning it on them, they need to turn it outwardly and say, you know what, I went through the same thing you went through, and let me tell you how I got, Christ got me through that. That's what they should be doing instead of turning inward and saying, I can't do anything. And so there's no passes on that, and Christ is pretty clear on his word on, the, on, on that. There's no indication whether this is public or private. There's no indication. I can't tell which way, if it's public or private. But we, it does say specifically, each one of us shall give an account. So it, that seems to indicate a one-on-one time that we're going to have in front of Christ. I don't know if other people can hear uh, or or what happens. I hope not either. Um, now remember, this is not so much a condemnation. It's a, what can Christ reward you for? So it's it, it, in many ways, it's a joyous occasion some, for some people. Um, but this is kind of like a um, the reward ceremony at the end of the Olympic Games. Because you're, give, you're going to see now in a little bit, the Stephanuses are given out. These are, uh, the Stephanuses are not diadems that Christ wears. It's Stephanuses, which is a laurel wreath that a victor would get from the Olympic Games. And you know the laurel wreath at the Olympics. This is what Paul is referring to, the Stephanuses which are not a crown per se, like a, a, a Christ that, that he wears. So I, I can't say which, whether it's public or private. Absolutely, there's, a, there's shame. Let's go to the next passage where we get, start getting into that. There is shame. 1 Corinthians 3.10 is the, one of the, uh, the best detailed passages of this. And Paul says this, According to the grace of God which was given unto me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. He's talking about he laid the foundation of who Christ was for every church. That's what Paul did when he started churches. He laid the foundation. And then he would leave it and then expect the pastors and the elders to build the foundation up. So that's was, that was his missionary game plan. And another builds thereon. Obviously the other pastors. But let each man take heed how he builds thereon. So basically it says, once I leave and I build the foundation of the church, 
Be careful. For other foundations can no man lay than which is laid. And the foundation, he's basically saying, which is Jesus Christ. That's an extremely important point. If you make the church anything other than Jesus Christ, you are building on the wrong foundation. Hence the cults. The Mormons build on the foundation of the family. Wrong. The Roman Catholic Church builds on the foundation of its history and its legacy, obviously, and its tradition. Wrong foundation. The church is not the foundation. It's not New Testament ethics. It's not New Testament morality. It's not the history. It's not the tradition. It's not church leaders. It is Jesus Christ alone. So if you get the wrong foundation and you build on the wrong foundation, you have spun your wheels. If you think it's anything other than Jesus Christ. And you can think of any cult for that matter. They're always building on the wrong foundation. So the foundation has got to be Jesus Christ. Okay? And it's not even ethics. That comes second. So now we get into some, some particulars. But if any man builds on the foundation, gold, silver, costly stones, those are of high quality, right? Then you have the low quality, wood, hay, stubble. Each man's work shall be made manifest for the judgment or sorry, for the day shall declare it. That judgment day is what he's talking about. Because it is revealed in fire or in judgment. And the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. Okay, so the fire of judgment is Christ will evaluate the works we did. Now, if the works we did are high quality, the precious stones, the silver and the gold, as a, a precious metal would go through a refiner's fire, Christ still purifies the metal, takes away the dross, and then you, what you still have is the metals left and the precious stones. But if you're going through fire with wood, hay, and stubble, what ends up happening with that? It'll just burn up and you will have nothing but ashes left, virtually nothing left. Notice it's not the quantity, it is the quality. That it will be evaluated. That is huge, my friends. When we're talking about quality versus quantity. You could kill yourself serving Christ. And if you did it with wood, hay, and stubble, it'll get burned up. These people spending 17 plates at the church, and you know who I'm talking about. They're the kind that are always down at the church house and they're doing 17 plates. If it is wood, hay, and stubble, they will get no reward for that. It's the quality of it. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we get that kind of quality. Well, he says, if any man's work, man's work shall abide, which uh, he built thereon. So you've got to build on the right foundation with the right quality. He shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. So he's talking, this is not about issue of salvation, folks. He clearly states that. Yet so as through fire. So the point about this is, a believer could be at the beam of seat of Christ, obviously go to heaven, but have no rewards to show for it. That is where the shame starts coming in. And I'll show you some other passages that deal with the shame. Okay, so then what is it, Brandon, that he is talking about that 
he wants us to build with high-quality materials versus wood, hay, and stubble. Well, first of all, it has to mean it has to be several things, and you can write these out to the side. This is an encapsulation of the entire New Testament, okay? And even the Old Testament about rewards. The point is, when you serve Christ, it must not be out of convenience that this is what you have left over from your week. And this is all that you can give, is whatever you have left. I have too many people tell me, well, when this season of my life ends, and when this season of my life starts, then I'll start serving. That season may never come. You serve Christ no matter what season you're in because you don't know if you're going to die tomorrow or the rapture could happen. And then what are you waiting for? You have missed your opportunity. So it's not me getting on you as a pastor. What I want to make sure you understand is I want you to be rewarded correctly and not be under some false impression that everyone gets rewards. If you trust in Christ, everyone gets salvation, but not every believer is going to get rewards. Because the churches have not taught about rewards. They simply don't talk about it. All they talk about is salvation, and that's fine. But it doesn't help the mature believer to understand what they're really getting into. Okay, so here's the deal. There's many people who say, well, I can do it when things slow down for me, or when I have more time, or when I, my kids grow up, or my kids get out of the baby stage, or whatever, whatever. When I retire from work, because I'm working 120 hours a week, then you're giving Christ second best. That's wood, hay, and stubble. And you're not going to get rewarded for that. So, with that being said, you've got to give Christ your best. So, in your service, there must be an element of sacrifice that you're giving up your time, you're giving up effort and energy to do something for the Lord, whether that's evangelism, whether that's serving at the church, you will not be rewarded out of convenience. You will only be rewarded for going the extra mile. So, people who serve only when it's convenient, you get nothing. We looked at a passage last week about if you just simply do your duty, you will not get rewarded for that. Jesus said, I think not, when you just do your duty. So if you're just simply keeping the commands, going to church, going to Bible study, that's simply your duty. That's not going the second mile. Most people don't understand that. They think they're going to get rewarded for just going to church every time. And that's not happening. That's simply your duty to go to church. It's simply your duty to pray. It's simply your duty to read your Bible. It's simply your duty to study. I'm not trying to, to, to I'm just trying to help you understand, but hey, what do I get rewarded for? You have to go the extra mile. It's gotta cost you something. Whether it's money, time, a day out of your life, I don't know. It's gotta cost you something. Okay. Then we get down to even more specifics. All through encapsulated in the New Testament, it'll come down to your motive. Why are you serving? Why do you do the things you do? Peter will point out that some people get into ministry out of filth, for filthy lucre, the motive for money. And you honestly know, you can see that. There's a lot of money to be made in religion. Look at Benny Hinn and all those joy boys. They make a lot of money, right? And people ingratiate themselves, and they create dynasties for themselves, and they, 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 they build a, uh, you know, a, a complex for them. And it's their dynasty. Well, fine. That motive will be weighed out. You're not getting away with not having the right motive. 
So Peter will make that point. Second, your methods must be ordained by God. Your methods must be ordained by God. Now, what do I mean by that? You just simply can't use any method for evangelism. The, the ends must justify the means. Even in church growth, you can't use any method to get your church to grow. I can tell you, you can use humanistic principles and get a crowd. But that's a humanistic method. It will not be rewarded. You might be able to count more heads and count more in the offering plate, but the method was wrong. And so if the method is wrong, you'd get no rewards for that. So motive, methods, how you go about it. So like for evangelism, I mean, obviously this would be an easy one. For, if you force people by the sword to submit to Christ like, like the Catholic Church did, or like some of the reformers did, and the people, okay, I accept Christ, I accept Christ, don't kill me, don't kill me. That's not going to be rewarded. The, obviously the method was wrong. And you see that, obviously. That's an easy one to spot. But now we're starting to get into some, some of the church growth things about methods and, and things like that. And, and let's, let's talk about that. Dumbing down sermons, preaching a seeker-friendly, is that the right method? I think not. Because you're dumbing it down for, for people. And you're doing it intentionally. I mean, so, so you have to you judge, how am I doing this? Conduct is the other one. Conduct. You could be serving Christ, but your conduct stinks. Your attitude stinks. Your character stinks. But you still could be doing things at the church, right? And you, you've probably seen many people do this. They serve at the church, but you know them at home. Or you know them as a neighbor, and you're like, that dude's crazy, man. Um, you know what I mean? And so their conduct is off the wall, off the chart. And so that has to be weighed out and will be weighed out. So yeah, motives, methods, conduct, good or bad, obviously. And he mentions that, whether good or bad. And um, and then as far as using the spiritual gifts God gave you. Okay? So I don't know how you use spiritual gifts if you want to title that. Now, what do I mean by that? That means you are responsible to use the gifts God gave you in service to the body of Christ and for evangelism. So, Christ is going to see if you developed the gifts, and he's going to see how you used them. Okay, so any questions on that? And and then I'll go into how you lose rewards. So that's an encapsulation of, of, of most of the New Testament. I'm not trying to depress you, man. I'm trying to make you sh- make sure you will un- you have a clear understanding of what Christ rewards. It's important. I would want to know. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? It's very hard. Peter, Paul, they will all make the statement, don't do things to be seen by men. Right? He's, he's talking about our motives. You want to do things secretly. You want to be behind the scenes. No one's seeing you. Yes, there are positions in the church that are going to be outward and everyone sees it. But most of the positions in a church you can do behind the scenes and no one knows you're there. You're there. And you have to have that kind of attitude that you're uh, kind of a, a secret servant that no one knows that you did this or that. And you, you don't look for the, the applause of men. Because if you look for that, you will get your applause here. Jesus told the Pharisees, you have your applause here, basically, and your thanks here, but you won't get it up there. 
So what, you can decide, do I want my applause here or do I want my, I want my applause up there? The other thing that causes, then we'll go to another category of losing rewards, and this will be all through the New Testament, is apostasy. Apostasy loses rewards. A departure of the faith loses rewards. It is incumbent upon every believer to make sure their doctrine is straight. Brother, would you say it's kind of natural when you're talking about rewards to feel like you never can do enough? Yeah, it is. It, it, to feel like you never can do enough in rewards. Yeah, it, it, I, I feel that same way. Because I have to always ask myself, am I using all my time correctly? I am, am I using the right motives, motives, methods? Sometimes I don't even ask those diagnostic questions. I'm just doing it. I just got to do this. And um, a lot of times if you, if you do something, sometimes it's just simply out of duty and your motives are not there. Like Jonah, you could be called to do something and you just go ahead and do it, but your attitude stinks. Well, you're like Jonah. You're not going to get rewarded if your attitude stinks. Your attitude has to be right. And so I'm going to church. I'm going to serve serve this person, and I can't stand this person. And there's that guy. I can't stand that guy. Um, and if your attitude is like that all the time, you're Jonah. He still served the Lord, did he not? But his attitude stunk. And you ain't going to get rewards for a stinky attitude. So there's a reason why people's attitudes are, are, are that way. But to your point, yeah, because I think what rewards, when you do a full gamut study of rewards, it puts all of our discipleship in check. So the real question, am I doing everything I can to grow like Christ, is really the question. And am I, am I really taking advantage of the time he's given me, the money he's given me, the talent he's given me, am I developing my gifts? That becomes diagnostic questions. So the question... Paul said, Paul said about becoming like Christ, even though he didn't achieve it yet, he still pressed on. That was his whole motive, is that I, having not achieved, I press on. And I think that's what, what every believer would, would, would think about when they think about rewards is, I have not achieved perfection. I need to keep pressing on. And whatever that means. And, um, hopefully, Tom, I think the, the idea is, the more mature I become, the more introspective I become, and the more I can understand my motives and things, and my ministry can grow. Now, I understand people get hampered by health issues, and they just can't simply do it. Christ knows that. Christ takes that into account if health issues are a, a, an issue. But man, if you're in the prime of life, and there's really nothing physically wrong with you, yeah, you have to check that. There's always something more if you were to go before Christ in prayer, what else do you want me to work on? I guarantee you he'll reveal something to you. If you just say, hey, what do you want me to work on? He'll show you that, and you're like, oh, I thought I had it all mastered. Um, you first do your spiritual inventory, and you read the scriptures of what the gifts are. It's in 1 Corinthians and Romans. talks about the gifts. You look on there, see if there's anything, and then one of the things you do is you just set sail and start doing something. You just start doing it. And you find what you you start liking, and you, hey, I'm going to go try this, and six months later, ah, I don't like that. And you go over here, and you'll find your heart's desire eventually, and you'll get settled, and you're like, man, this is my groove. And then you'll find that your gifts match your heart desire. Because he will always direct your gifts to your heart desire. And you when when you're in your groove... It's like hitting a home run. You don't even feel it. You don't feel the ball when you hit a home run. 
yeah, you're in the flow, you're in the groove, your sweet spot. When you're there, you can almost do it automatically. When you've developed it well, you almost do it automatically. Weird. But it's the Holy Spirit doing it. If you turn and you look at the gift inventory, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 12, obviously. There are diversities of activities, but in the same God who works in all, and the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, all the church. For to one is given the word of wisdom, so people have wisdom or discernment. And to another, the word of knowledge of the same Spirit. Another faith. Another gift of healings. Another working of miracles. Prophecy, those are apostolic gifts in a lot of ways. Discerning of spirits, tongues, and he distributes to each one individually as he wills, and then he talks about the body. And then if you turn to uh, Romans, he gives the one of prophecy in Romans 12, ministry, teaching, exhorting. This is Romans uh, Romans 12, and starting with probably 5, five through verse 5 on down. Exhortation, uh, mercy, stuff like that. Those are, if you look both chapters 12 of Romans and 12 of First Corinthians, the gift inventory. Well, apostle with a capital A doesn't exist any longer because the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the Lord, so that doesn't exist anymore. There's the the term apostle will be used lowercase if you want to say if you want to say that of of there were lesser apostles, like uh, Barnabas and, and uh, was considered an apostle, but not of the twelve. Okay, so there's a difference in that. The 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 gift of prophecy obviously was a it was a, a gift given for the early church because they didn't have the New Testament, obviously. Um, and so once the canon is completed, um, you don't see prophecy being extant anymore. It doesn't mean that God can't speak to people. But as far as revelatory of I want this written down to be my word, that, that no longer exists. There might be prophets in another sense of exhortation, and those are, they exist. Many, many pastors have that gift of exhorting through the scriptures, of uh, not foretelling, but forthtelling. And so that exists in that way. But healings, I'd like to see that. Because that was an apostolic gift. So you have to differentiate if the gift was an apostolic gift of healings versus a common gift to the average Christian. And many of the healing things was given to the apostles for sign gifts. Tongues, obviously that's a language. It's not ecstatic utterances. And he uses a Greek neuter in, in 1 Corinthians. And the Greek neuter always refers back to the antecedent, and you look for the neuter, and you keep going back and going back and going back, and it's not referring to the canon. It is referring to the com- uh, the completion of the body of Christ, which is the neuter in the antecedent. That being the case, then, so when someone comes to you and says, I speak in tongues, I want to say, what language are you speaking? What language are you speaking? Well, I don't know. I go in my prayer closet, and I said, you're not supposed to do it in your prayer closet. That's within the context of the church. And I want to know what you're what you're saying. Is it Russian? Is it Chinese? Is it Spanish? Is it what? And what they'll say is they don't know because they're not they haven't done it properly. And because typically, probably 98% of what's going on in the charismatic movement is wrong. Now it does happen on the mission fields, and I've talked to missionaries where they were able to speak in an entirely different foreign language and they never learned it. But it's always to a new people group. 
but it does not exist in charismatic circles where they're doing ecstatic utterances like Benny Hinn, and, and they're saying, I have the gift of tongues. I'm sorry, that's not the gift of tongues. It's a language. It's always for evangelism, for a sign gift. And then, it, and then if it's in the church context, like, it, like Paul says, he didn't, I didn't forbid it. If it's in the context of a church, you must follow the rules. There must be an interpreter. You better have an interpreter if you're pulling that one off. Because then you're not edifying the body and you're in violation of the gifts. Now you're using the gift for yourself, and that's exactly what Paul said not to do. You're using it for yourself. So anyone that comes to me and pops off like that, I said, well, you need to have an interpreter. Because I don't know what you're saying. And he said, well, I go in my prayer closet. Well, that's a misunderstanding of First Corinthians 14. The prayer language was supposed to be, they use it as a, a, a private prayer language. The whole chapter is dealing with the context of a church. In the church public area, it's supposed to happen. Paul had the ability to heal people. The guy that fell out of the window listening to Paul all night, and he got tired, and he fell. He died. And so Paul has to wake him up and basically revive him uh, to life. Peter, people were trying to get in his shadows, a shadow, and he could heal people and stuff like that. That stayed with them. But as you see, in the end of Paul's ministry, he can't even heal Timothy. He tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Why would Paul not just go to him, Timothy, if he had that gift still, and heal him? He didn't do it. And so it, it seems to start fading out as the canon is coming to a close, and there's no need to establish apostolic authority. Once you have the canon, that's where the authority now lies, not with the apostles anymore. They were the ones establishing the canon. The interesting thing, what was happening in the Corinth church was they were copying what was happening in the uh, um, in the pagan temples. They, Satanism does ecstatic utterances, and so does paganism. They do ecstatic utterances. You can find this all in the occult. And this was happening in the Corinth church, and a lot of the Corinth church was doing this, obviously. And Paul had to get it in order and figure out what was going on. But um, obviously, it's easy to understand it tongues, and I don't know why it's so controversial, because... Acts chapter 2 explains exactly what was happening. We hear him in our language. And it was a sign for Israel. And what was the sign to Israel? And Peter points this out in Acts. The sign for Israel that judgment was coming on them is, came, came from Isaiah and Moses. Moses and Isaiah both told Israel, when you hear foreign tongues, that means judgment is coming. So Pentecost happens in Jerusalem not only to be a sign gift for the apostles, but it's also a sign to Israel. Judgment is coming, and it came in 70 AD, did it not? And that's exactly what Moses and Isaiah prophesied. So, it did come. And so it was an, a twofold thing, uh, of authority with apostles, and then obviously judgment with Israel. Israel knew when they heard foreign tongues, it would be judgment. Um, I, I, I will have to continue this on, um, it's a lot We'll talk next week of how people lose rewards, and we'll talk a little bit more about the shame or approval that comes by doing a good job for the Lord, because there is shame and approval attached to this. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. 
If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.